I was never the sort of traditional hacker who liked, you know, attacking things and really approached security as a developer, as a defender, sort of from day one. We have tools that sort of automatically monitor that, alert us, and then we can now then go and ping those developers and decide sort of how much we need to get involved in the process. We try and be as lightweight as possible with the developers. I have a philosophy. I want to change the way we do security to fit in with the way the developers perform their job. Hi, I'm Guy Pojarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybeats.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic for us to discuss, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Secure Developer. Today we have with us Sean Gordon from New Relic, who's the Chief Security Officer at New Relic. Thanks for coming on the show, Sean. Thank you. So before we get going, do you mind uh, giving the audience a bit of an introduction about yourself? You know, what do you do? What's your background? Sure. Well, I actually started my career way back when as a software developer, actually doing IBM networking to HP mini computers. <laughs> so many years ago, um, but moved through a whole bunch of roles and sort of ended up in security almost through accident about 12, 13 years ago when I was sort of helping deal with a security incident at Intuit, where I was working back then. And turned out to be something I was really interested in. Sort of moved into security, worked at Intuit for almost 10 years in security, I think, there. And then joined New Relic about five years ago, basically as a first security hire when the company was pretty small, about 140 people. And basically built up the entire security team to the point we are now with about 15 people basically focused on security. Cool. Interesting, the, uh, the switch from uh, dev to security, was that well embraced in Intuit at the time? Yeah, so I actually made the shift, it was almost to an operations role where I was sort of looking at the health of the overall website for Intuit. And that's sort of, you know, we had a security incident and there weren't a lot of security people and no one knew how to handle this and so I sort of <laughs> took it on and it just became a passion for me. Cool. I think companies tend to embrace anybody today, anybody sort of moving into security. And it's always yeah. this, you know, first of all, you're probably, you know, <laughs> most organizations would have a whole bunch of open wrecks in security because talent yep. shortage is a problem. Yeah. But no, I think I think maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago that would have been a, a little bit more novel. Yeah, it's actually interesting when I talk to a lot of my peers, they come from different directions. I mean, I was never the sort of traditional hacker who liked, <laughs> you know, attacking things. I never got those skills, you know, formally anywhere. Yeah. Just sort of backed into it and really have approached security as a developer, as a defender, sort of from day one. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. And in fact, you know, spot on for this show as well. So I guess while we're at it, can you tell us a little bit about how does security work at uh, New Relic? You know, just sort of the, uh, the the headlines, <laughs> and clearly a lot of the focus is on sort of dev and and how yep. does uh, sort of the dev process uh, involved with security. So we have a central security team, as I mentioned. They sort of you know started with me as the single security person five years ago. Added an appsec person, which was sort of. <laughs> It was something I needed to do, but it was actually something a sad day for me because that's always my passion. So I started handing that off to somebody else. Since then, I've built the team up into really three areas. I've got my AppSec team, which I'm sure we'll get into a lot more and mm-hmm. sort of what they do. Um, I've got a compliance team that does sort of traditional compliance activities, you know, our SOC 2 certification, FedRAMP, SOCs, all those sort of things. And then I've got sort of the traditional infrastructure IT security team that focuses on both the 
security of our product itself, the infrastructure, data center security, as well as our corporate IT security. Okay, and it's a 15-person team right now. And you're you're split, right? You're distributed, that team? Or? Yeah, so it turned out, um, when I joined the company, the company is fairly evenly split between San Francisco, where we're sort of headquartered, and Portland, where we had most of our development and support. And I assumed, you know, I built the team here, most of my hires would be here. It turns out I only have myself and two other people in San Francisco and really <laughs> have built up the team um, in Portland primarily. A large part of that is because our development organization is there and it really makes sense to have the developers um, working very closely with my application security people, as well as we've had a really good luck finding you know, really good talent there versus in San Francisco area, um, yeah. there's a lot of competition. Yeah. Definitely, I think in all fronts and security, probably yep. yeah, is no no different in that front. Yeah. So really, you know, right now the majority of the team, the AppSec team, the infrastructure team, are pretty much primarily located up in Portland, working with the developers. Which is, you know, that's been a great thing for us because they act as if developers. They attend the same meetings. You know, they tend to you know follow the same processes. And although we're a completely separate organization from all outward appearances, they are developers. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So that I mean, I think that probably brings us into sort of a good opportunity to dig into the AppSec process. But uh, I like <laughs> I like the starting point of basically prioritizing security's proximity, physical proximity to yep. uh, to Dev uh, as part of it. So okay, cool. So that's the sort of the overlay team. You know, how does application security work? So we try and be as lightweight as possible with the developers. I have a philosophy for my team, which is I want to change the way we do security to fit in with the way the developers perform their job versus trying to get them to adapt the way they work mm -hmm. to what we're doing. And so that means a lot of what we do is as transparent as possible. We're trying to do it in the background. So we do a lot of lightweight processes, I guess I would consider them. So some of the examples are when they create a new ticket, basically they're going to create a new product, a new feature. They generally create a JIRA for that. We have tools that sort of automatically monitor that, alert us, and then we can now then go and ping those developers and ask them a few basic questions about what they're doing and decide sort of how much we need to get involved in their process. And in some cases, you know, we just have a short conversation with these developers and we say, we're done, you're good, you know, here's a few things to worry about, but don't come and bother us. Other cases, we say we have to dig deeper. We have to go and do some sort of threat modeling um, and really understand what they're doing, provide a lot of guidance during the development process. We also do a lot of monitoring of their commits and things. So we have things that we do, so automated tools that look at the commits and try and find things that might be a risk, methods that we know have caused us problems before, comments that mention we're doing encryption yeah. or passwords, that sort of thing. And monitor that sort of thing, and when we need that, you know, we dig in further with them as well. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. So, you're, like, you're basically you're monitoring developer activity automatically, so that they don't need to to worry about that, you know. And they might proactively initiate something, but yeah, you, know, you can track those, and 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 then that alerts you to decide whether you need to yeah intervene. So so a lot of it, I mean, we do want to train our developers to reach out when they need to, and, and we've done a lot of things to make it easy for them to do that. But we also want to create the processes so we know when to get involved. Once again, so the developers don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about when should I get security involved, what do I need to do. We want triggers that cause us to go off and say, hey, you're doing this thing, we should talk a little bit. Yeah. 
Cool. I think it's really cool. It reminds me a little bit that you know at Sneak we try to surface vulnerabilities from from the world of open source GitHub and we track yeah. all sorts of activities. You know, probably slightly given the volume of traffic, you know, uh, slightly more uh, you know specific uh, mentions around somebody opening you know a GitHub issue or the likes that mentions a potential vulnerability. But never never really kind of occurred to me to apply that in the context of a specific organization to try and be you know uh, an alerting mechanism of sorts, I guess, for mm-hmm. the uh, for the security team to intervene. How uh, often does this catch something? I mean, how? Uh... So, I, I mean, I think we have a pretty high level of engagement with the developers. I think you know most of our products, you know, we are getting engaged. So we we are seeing early on what they're doing, getting engaged. So I think from that standpoint, we're catching most of the products that yeah. we think have a security risk. There's very few times when we're actually surprised by something go out the door. I won't say we're never surprised, yeah. but it's very few times generally. Cool. So this is a, this is like security monitoring and maybe proactively engaging when there's a reason or sort of assessing this risk assessment. What about the dev side? You know, what do you do to you know do you do work to sort of empower or educate the the devs themselves on security? So we do have a certain amount of training. Um, we try to push a certain number of resources out to them. So we have our you know website, our Jive site, where we basically put you know guidance for developers in general. We're not doing a huge amount of formal developer training, and I actually have mixed opinions on developer training. I've seen a little bit of it done well, but for the most part, I haven't seen anybody being really successful with it. You, you know, put them in front of this classroom, in a classroom, have an instructor teach them about all the secure coding practices, yeah. and within two weeks, it's basically all gone. So my real focus is how can we catch those things, you know, without Having to train the developers, I don't want the tra- developers to have to think about security that much. You know, static analysis tools, that sort of thing. Static analysis tools are actually a real challenge for me. So, you know, we do a certain amount of that. But one of my concerns is if I want to be transparent, I have to make sure I'm not scaring developers by giving them, you know, huge lists of unactionable results, that sort of thing. So, how, figuring out how to implement. You know, this sort of tools, this sort of monitoring, produce actual results I can get to developers quickly without having them have to become security experts. And so that's always been, you know, a challenge for me. And that, that's why we do some of the very lightweight things like the automated monitor of the you know, GitHub commits, that sort of thing that I mentioned before. Yeah, no, I think it makes sense. I think that's been the sort of the bane of existence for uh, sort of static application security. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to uh, mention tools, any names, are, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's been you know I, I built one <laughs> in in AppScan uh, AppScan Source. Well, that, that was an acquisition, but then before that, uh, developer edition, uh, and it's been you know it's it's a challenge doing this uh, static analysis. Is just a fundamentally false positive prone and finding the ways to not make it uh, false positive yeah. prone. And, there's gems in there, but uh, yeah. there's a lot of noise around. And I'm using that sort of as a you know just poster child for a problem I see in mm-hmm. general, which is tools that can't really decide if their target audience is a security professional or a developer. And I think, you know, looking at the industry and the tools around, I, I see that challenge all over the place. You know, are you trying to produce very detailed results mm-hmm. that can be used by the professionals, but then then interpreted for developers, or are you trying to produce something that's aiming at just the developers? And that latter half is where I think we really need to move as an industry, and where I haven't seen a lot of people do it really well yet. It's very easy 
to turn a developer off of a tool very quickly by giving them unactionable information, by calling them out on something that they don't understand what it is, and more importantly, how to fix it. Yes. So that's, that's been a challenge I've seen. And, and it's something I see we're getting better at, and I think people are starting to decide. But every time I see a product pitch for something, I, I can tell they're trying to be two things, you know, and, and they need to just choose one. Yeah. Like I am 100% on board. That's <laughs> kind of a, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you know, my philosophy all around. Yep. I think it even goes beyond probably the, you know, it's not just about actionable and false positive. It's also about ease of onboarding and, you know, how well does it integrate with your workflow and exactly, uh, you yeah. know, just the, 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 the cost of ownership, the effort level of using it has to be yeah. on par competitive with other developer tools, which is a pretty, pretty high bar. I mean, those are, those are good tools and you have to invest in developer UX, not just in, you know, an auditing tool that happens to run in the context of a developer tool. Yeah, I agree. And and it, that integration is key. Adding another step, you know, two steps, three steps, whatever it is to my development process, I'm going to fail because people are either going to get really upset the fact that I've had, you know, making them do all these extra things, yep. or they're not going to do it. And in either way, I'm not getting any value out of this. I'm either ruining my reputation within the company, you know, this is a team that just keeps imposing things on us. Yep. Or, like I said, I bought this tool and just nobody's going to use it. Right, because everybody knows. Yeah. So yeah, fully, fully aligned there. So moving kind of further up that stack. So this is you know developers building hopefully secure applications. You know what happens on the who owns the alerts if there's you know if there's something you know you're a new relic you know <laughs> you're sort of well familiar with uh, with uh, alerting mechanisms and uh, and dashboards. Who looks at those dashboards? So that is actually my team, the AppSec team primarily, as well as the um, infrastructure team. But yeah, we are the ones who are sort of looking at those alerts, triaging when we're seeing things, and then basically translating for the developers. And once again, because I don't think the level of alerts we're getting through any tool, no matter how good the tool is, yeah. are clean enough to send directly to developers. And so, you know, we're using, we have a lot of alerting. We actually use a lot of our own um, software for doing that. So, mm-hmm. our own insights product, a lot of the alerts go in there, flag us for various things. And a lot of them are feeds from sort of, you know, traditional tools and scanners that we've either, you know, using as SaaS, you know, SaaS services or brought in house. Or in some cases, they're very custom built monitoring tools that we've created ourselves. Cool. Yeah, and I think that very much aligns with the previous point, right? If it's if it's fully actionable, you can put it, and it doesn't require security knowledge, you can put it in the hands of the regular ops team. As yeah. long as you need security expertise and or there's too much noise, you yeah. have to sort of bear that burden uh, yeah. in the context of AppSec. I mean, that, that's always sort of one of my mantras. Um, something I always you know push my team towards is make sure that if we are telling anybody anything about the security of their product. That's actionable, and that applies to those sort of alerts that we're sending around, you know, security vulnerabilities, and it even applies to things like executive level dashboards. So if I'm going to create an executive level dashboard that says that this business unit or this group is yeah. red because they've done something bad, there better be a very clear path for them to go from red to green. Right. Otherwise, I'm just pissing them off. Yeah. So this is all very practical in. Sort of the logical world of software development and security, <laughs> compliance and regulations don't necessarily always sort of follow common logic. How how do you find these practices work with you know needing to be compliant? You know you're a big public company yep. now. 
Yeah, so I mean, we are we've we've done SOC two compliant for four years or so. Now we're a public company. We have to be SOX compliant. Yeah, we're going through FedRAMP compliant. So pretty familiar with a compliance product, and that's it's always a struggle in my mind. And, and probably one of my biggest struggles is exactly what you asked: How do we be compliant without interfering with all these processes? And I, this is actually interesting. I actually did an RSA talk a few years back about how to do this in the SOC two world. I think my major points are really that our job is to educate and manage the auditors and help them understand how the industry is changing and how some of the things we're doing now not only are equivalent to what we used to look for in the old world, but are in some cases a lot better. But it's not simple to do. Basically, the simple audit process in my experience is they come in with a big long list of these are the requests we have, this is a way companies generally deliver this, this is the sort of evidence you provide, provide us this evidence. Yeah. And a lot of times what we need to do then is understand what is the real question, what is the real control they're trying to solve, not what is the evidence they're asking for. And where I've seen audits fail a lot is when the security team takes that list that the auditor is asking for and just then hands it to the developers, hands it to IT, hands yeah. it to HR. Rather than taking a look at that and saying, wait, this is what they're really asking for. This is what we're doing in our environment. And one of the big challenges I've seen in that is that in order to do that successfully, you sort of have to have a foot in both worlds. You have to have a foot in the compliance world and you have to have a foot in the development technology world. So in order for me to understand what the auditor is really asking for, I need to understand the compliance world. But then to understand what we can actually deliver that will meet that, I need to understand our development processes. I need to understand our technology stack. And that's been one of the biggest challenges that I've seen. And I don't know that there's great answers for that, but it's it's definitely, I think, what we need to do. We've been, honestly, pretty successful with this. There are very few controls that I can think of right now, um, and I'll give you one example in a minute, but that we have implemented Purely because of For audit, compliance, yeah. yeah. Purely because of compliance, where I don't think it's actually adding any real value. The big one I actually mentioned this in my security awareness training is password resets and password requirements. You know, passwords <laughs> must be reset every ninety days. Passwords must consist of you know eight characters and mixed type of characters. That's basically not a complaint. Even if you look at the you know the latest NIST guidance, they're saying this doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. We're using multi-factor. There's no real reason, but this is one we just haven't been able to push back on yet. Not that I won't keep trying, pushing on the auditors, saying, hey, look, this is better than what you're asking for, um, but we're not there yet. Yeah, well, I hope everybody after that talk went up and bought you a beer, because I think like, <laughs> the, the notion of educating uh, an auditor is, you know, those, those yeah. words, you know, people get a shiver. And, <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, and to be honest, it really depends on the audit. I mean, the SOC 2, we've been very successful on that, um, because a lot of companies that are sort of, you know, DevOps, very agile, fast moving, are doing SOC 2. The auditors get that now. Yeah. Other audits, it's a little more challenging. I mean, SOCs, they've got you a little more over a barrel there than you do for the SOC 2. SOC 2 we're doing because it's voluntary and we want to do it for our yeah. customers. Socks, we're doing it because we have to do it. FedRAMP's even a different story. You know, in that case, we're doing it because we want to do it, but you're also dealing with the government. So there's challenges there and yep. there's you know rules that have to be followed. Yeah, and I think the hopefully the process here is indeed an education exercise that eventually, you know, auditors 
would have a challenge with the first time they encounter, the second time they encounter, when it's the fifteenth company yeah. that deals with it in in a certain capacity. And I think we've seen this with the cloud security, where cloud as a whole, like running something in the cloud, used to be a no-no, and <laughs> you know you would have to educate the auditors to do it. I mean, and now it's it's fairly well understood, and, you know, yes. to the to the extent that. You know, that's also maybe a frustration. They might even have you know the specific you know AWS IAM thing that you need to set up yeah. in their sort of <laughs> list of uh, prescribed uh, prescribed steps. Yeah, and one of the other challenges we're facing or have faced with audits too is just like the development world, DevOps world, it's all about continuous improvement. Yeah, so we're doing the same thing within the security team. We're changing in some cases the way we do things, and in theory, we're doing them because it's going to improve our processes. Every time we do this, we're now going to have to re-educate the auditors and perhaps even take a risk that they're not going to buy into this new process. But I honestly you know, believe that I'm doing this, I'm not going to drive what I do for security for compliance. I'm going to do what I need to do to make us secure, to make our customers' data secure, and we'll figure out how to make the compliance follow. So first of all, I love the the notion, even the terminology you use, all comes back indeed to your background around being a developer and coming into security from from yeah. the development approach and and how you build there. One thing that stayed with me though from your intro was that New Relic was a small 140 person company when you were the first security hire. Yep. Uh, can you can you tell us a bit about the the evolution there? Because on one hand, you know that's entirely. Typical and normal, and we've had you know Kyle at Optimizely here, and we had the PagerDuty team, and you know it takes a while until a full-time security person gets hired. On the other hand, 140 people is also to many uh, many people is not that small, and you're already processing a pretty substantial amount of you know money and data mm-hmm. uh, at that time. How was security handled before? Can you tell us a little bit about how how was the evolution of security at New Relic? So, so I was actually surprised when I came in. That I mean, well, definitely nobody had security in their job title. I don't think anybody was really even consciously thinking about security sort of top of mind. But I was surprised at how security conscious people were in general and how little, I mean, Jesus, lack of a better term, sort of cleanup I had to do when I got there. Um, it's actually an interesting story. So when I was hired, I mean, one of the impetuses for hiring me was the company was growing and realized we need to start, you know, thinking more about security. But I think probably the biggest impetus is we had promised as a company to get a SOC 2 certification. And I joined the company, I think, about a month before the auditors came, <laughs> basically, you know, to get us through the audit. It's a good trigger. Yeah. And it, you know, it turned out that you know, I was able to actually take a lot of what we were already doing, which were good security practices, frame it in the terms that the auditors needed. And we were actually able to, you know, get through that audit with no findings. Basically, an unqualified report. Yeah. That's always a terrible term. These people get really yeah. <laughs> unqualified. Sounds bad, but no, an unqualified report is actually that's a good thing. And we were able to do that because we were basically doing the right things before. People were focusing on good practices, good development practices, which in a lot of cases is good security practices. So a lot of what we ended up having to build was just sort of you know more. Formality around a lot of what we're doing. So being able to actually formally check that we're doing these things, continuing to do them, actually starting to look for vulnerabilities instead of just assuming yeah. we weren't creating the vulnerabilities, that sort of thing. So once I joined, I mean, I, I think that a big part was just sort of you know now being able to actually sit down with the developers and really help them as they architect the product and get in early, 
versus before it was just sort of you know hoping they had done the right thing through the process. Yeah, I wonder how much is there even like there's a lack of expertise, but there might even be some sort of of reflecting away the the responsibility when there is a security person. When there's no security person, then there's nobody else to to sort of. I don't know if blame, but sort of you know expect to have assumed this responsibility, uh, that, so you have to take it on. That, that's a really interesting point. That, that's actually interesting because that gets back to you know there's two perpetual arguments I always have um, with other people and in my own mind in security, and one is sort of where does the security team sit? The application security people do they sit you know on a security team or do they sit with developers? And two, should the application security team be developing? Security code? Should they be coding? Should they be helping fix the vulnerabilities? And one of my arguments against having them help fix the vulnerabilities, do that coding, is always it starts saying that security is a security team's responsibility yep. and not the developer's responsibility. Yep, so it's a fine line. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I fully agree with that. I think uh, vulnerability is a bug uh, <laughs> and it should be. Fixed. It should be prevented. It you know it should be regressed. It, it should all of that just like any other bug. Yep. The difference between it and uh, a, a functional bug is that it's an implication of a control that you did not have more often than not yep. versus uh, versus maybe the functional bug, which is you know like it's it's intentional behavior that you are now not supporting. You know with security, it's it's the unintended behavior uh, that you're looking for. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think the the size of it, you know, I must say when I started having some of these conversations, you know, I if you asked me before, you know, what size company do I think for startups, for instance, uh, you know, they should hire a security person, I would have assumed or would have uh, recommended a smaller size, but it seems like that rough size of company that is in the sort of hundred to two hundred clearly depends on the on the nature of the business as well. Seems to be where a security person comes in, and maybe it comes back to that tooling. You know, if the tools, the better the tools get, the more they allow dev teams to sort of build security practices without necessarily that focal point. Yeah, I, I would absolutely echo that, and I, I get asked this question a lot: is you know, when should we hire a security person? And a lot of it really does depend on the nature of what you're doing. I mean, if if you're a company that's collecting some really sensitive data, handling credit cards, Bitcoin, whatever yeah. it might be. You should be hiring somebody as your you know tenth, twelfth hire, something like that. But for you know a company larger that's handling less sensitive data, you know you want to focus on a lot of the other things, the stability, um, the feature set, and just you know provide the developers the tools. And as we talked about earlier, there's a lot of these tools that are becoming more and more developer friendly, so they can handle a lot of this themselves. Yeah, I think this is. To an extent, an evolution of the whole DevOps and DevOps yeah. sec uh, revolution. Yep. So maybe on on that topic, you know, New Relic is oftentimes, at least in my mind, I think in many, you know, one of the pioneers of of the DevOps notion. Right? It's definitely one of the of the enablers of it. And in fact, many many teams today don't have a dedicated or you know fairly good sized companies don't have a dedicated ops team. You know they might have DevOps as a concept, and they clearly do ops work, but that ops work is is done embedded into the application. How do you see you know maybe in practice, but also like where should we strive to uh, uh, the the evolution of security? Is it is it along those lines? Is it different? No, I, I do believe. Um, I mean, the two things are. Getting security close to the developer, both in terms of the tools and processes they're using, and you know, in terms of time, making security information available to them real time. So as soon as I do my commit, 
I get some sort of information about what I might have done incorrectly, where I might be introducing security vulnerabilities. As soon as my code goes to staging, it's scanned immediately, and I get real-time notification that there's something there. And so I, I absolutely see that. And, and that's the way we're going to need to scale our team. I mean, that's the way automation is how I see my team scaling. And I see it's the only way we can continue to keep up with this very rapid you know, development cycles and the speed you know, at which the company itself is growing, the number of developers is growing. We're never going to be able to scale with them. Yeah, without the uh, so pushing back on that a little bit. I mean, when people talk about DevOps, you know, automation and uh, and maybe controls and visibility were, were sort of key on it for sure. Yeah. But many people would come back and say, well, DevOps first and foremost is a cultural shift. You know, yes, automation was sort of a key enabler for it, but it's a culture shift about understanding developers understanding that they need to build operable software and ops people understanding that they can't just, you know, like point the finger at developers, but that, you know, they need to be yaysayers, you know, not naysayers uh, in the company. You know, what comes first, the uh, the chicken or the egg here in, in security? I mean, is our primary barrier tooling and automation or is it is it more culture? I guess I haven't thought a lot about this one, but I mean, I think the tooling has to be there in order to be successful here. And, and I'm torn. The reason this is hard for me to answer is I'm torn between that whole wanting to security to be as transparent as possible and wanting developers to have to think about this. So I do want developers to understand that they are responsible for their security of their code. It's not something just like you can't throw it over the wall to the ops team and say, support this. You can't throw this over the wall to the security team and say, secure this. Yeah. So they have to understand they are responsible for that security. But at the same time, I don't want to have to make them security experts because that's taking away from their day job. And you know, the security skills, it takes a long time for a lot of us to learn. Right. And it's not the best use of their time. Yeah. And I guess that does come back to both what you mentioned previously about having a path to green, <laughs> yeah. uh, but also the, the DevOps side is you know you can demand and, and try to set up developers yeah. to, uh, to own security, but it's only if you have a path to green there. <laughs> exactly. And I'm a big fan. We've been discussing a lot within my team recently about you know things like scorecards, dashboards, that sort of thing. So you know, maybe we're not consciously or you know very in the forefront saying you do this, this, this. But we're going to show you. You know, this is your security scorecard. This is how well you are doing with your product, and whether that's a combination of the number of vulnerabilities they're introducing, or what it might be. I don't know yet, yep. but I think that's you know a path to helping them understand that they are responsible for security. That what they do impacts the security of their product and the company in general. Yeah, I think these uh, these types of mechanisms are critical in my mind. I, the security is naturally invisible. I mean, you use the word transparent in the sense that it's not you know like behind a curtain or something. Yeah. You want it to be you know a natural part of their uh, of their flow uh, that they do it by default. But at the same time, security is too invisible. Right? There's no there's no natural <laughs> feedback loop for security. You know, except. At best, actually failing an audit, and at worst, yeah, yeah. getting hacked. Yeah. Uh, so there's no there's no like medium pain that you feel before the big pain that would you know kind of move you or push you to to the right behavior. Yep. So we have to give some mechanisms that that give you that visibility over time. 
Yeah, cool. So, you know, this is fascinating. I actually have like a whole uh, slew of other topics to dig into, but I think we're getting out of time. So before I let you go, I always ask uh, my guests here for one tip, or if you, if you were thinking about a dev team that is trying to kind of upgrade their handling of security, what's your sort of one tip or maybe like a pet peeve for something <laughs> they, they, they should do better? So, so I think the thing, I, I'll talk about a sort of one thing if I could teach them to do. And this is going to go back to sort of some of the things I talked about before, particularly to the transparent point. I don't want them to be security experts. Well, sure, I want them to be security experts, but I don't expect them to be security experts. I'm not going to try and make them security experts. I want them, developers, to understand risk and understand that every decision they make is a risk decision and that they need to understand what is the appropriate level of risk that they can take on as they develop their code. And what that means is in some cases, I'm going to take a shortcut or I'm going to do something that might introduce a little bit of risk for my one feature. And in some cases, I might be doing something, you know, creating a new feature, creating a new product that's going to expose the entire company to an enormous amount of risk by, let's say, collecting sensitive information. The developers need to understand what their risk is, why it matters, and when they are empowered to make those risk decisions, and when they need to bring in experts from the security team or somebody more senior in the company to help them make those risk decisions. I like that. Understand the fork in the road. You know, just being able to to assess, you know, how how big a deal is this decision you're making right now. Exactly. Uh, and yeah. adapt it. Cool. Well, hopefully, uh, people take that to heart. Well, thanks a lot, Sean, for uh, coming on the show. Thank you. And uh, thanks for everybody who tuned in. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or want us to cover a specific topic, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. To learn more about Heavybeat, browse to heavybeat.com. You can find this podcast and many other great ones, as well as over 100 videos about building developer tooling companies, given by top experts in the field. 